I'm Scott Detrow. There's so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. With a team of NPR political reporters and editors, we record two episodes a week and sometimes more when the big news happens. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's pretty much always hard to talk about death and loss. I mean, I'm a professional interviewer. It comes up plenty there, and, and it never gets any easier. Griffin Dunn knows about that, too. He's an actor and a director. He just made a documentary about his aunt, writer Joan Didion. In the early 2000s, Didion lost both her husband and her daughter, pretty close together, too. And Griffin was related to everybody involved. The dead were also his uncle and his cousin. Still, he was making a documentary, so he had to ask about it. You know, she, she's a journalist and is being interviewed, and she knows, of course, I'm going to ask that and probably would not have any respect for me if I didn't, you know, go there. While it was very tough, um, there'd be also moments in the silences where she'd, you know, look up and go, keep going, bring it on. I know where you're going. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Griffin Dunn talks about his new documentary, Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold. It's the first ever about Didion. Dunn has also starred in movies like After Hours and American Werewolf in London and Dallas Buyers Club. One of his teachers was the legendary Uta Hagen. And trust me, you did not want to disappoint Uta Hagen. And the most cutting thing I ever saw happen was two actors in a scene that clearly wasn't going very well. She just didn't even take the time. She just went, okay, darlings, oh, that was wonderful, thank you, who's up? And you could just feel it chill. But first, Stephanie Beatrice. She stars on the Fox sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She's also in a brand new feature film, a drama called The Light of the Moon. We'll talk about all of that, but also how she and her dad cemented their father-daughter bond watching Seinfeld. It was really like the way that my dad and I bonded a lot. Because as a teenager, you know, you don't like your parents. You think that they're awful. And they are, but really you are the awful one. So it was the only way that my dad (laughs) and I were able to sort of bond and like have a thing that was just ours then a recommendation for one of the best comedy shows to ever come on abc after home improvement in the mid-1990s that's all coming up on bullseye let's go it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne Um, I want to give you a quick warning before we get into this next interview. We're going to be talking openly and honestly about sexual assault. So if you aren't comfortable listening to that, it'll be about 30 minutes or so. My guest is Stephanie Beatrice. For five seasons, she starred on the hit Fox show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's one of my absolute favorite comedies on TV. Everybody in the cast is great. Terry Crews, Andy Samberg, Chelsea Peretti, everybody. Stephanie plays Detective Rosa Diaz, and Rosa is easily the toughest cop in the precinct. She's brave, serious. She rides a motorcycle and wears a black leather jacket. She's so tough, in fact, that she won't even let a cold keep her down. I don't need your help because I am not sick. Gina, where is the cold medicine? I hate to point out the obvious, but why do you need the meds if you're not sick, huh? to fight off the cold symptoms that my healthy body is exhibiting. Now Stephanie is starring in a brand new movie. It's called The Light of the Moon. In it, she plays Bonnie, a young woman living in Brooklyn with her boyfriend. At the beginning of the movie, she goes through a vicious sexual assault. And from there, it's the story of the aftermath of that event, its effect on her work life, her relationships, even little stuff, like whether she wears headphones when she's getting off the subway. And as often as we see rape in our entertainment, this story of its aftermath is one we see very rarely. Stephanie joins me from NPR Studios in New York. Stephanie Beatrice, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. 
I am such so. Here's the deal. We're going to talk about uh, your new movie, The Light of the Moon, in a little bit. Um, Great. But because the subject matter is so serious, I want to talk about the silly stuff first. Okay. Because um, I think that's an easier transition. Uh, so let's talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is one of my favorite shows on television. Oh, great. I'm so happy to hear that. It is. I, I don't miss an episode. And I, I wonder how you got this gig. Because it is an interesting array of types of actor on the show, ranging from straight-up comedy people to the most serious of dramatic actors. That came about in a lot of different ways. One of the main ways that did happen was Allison Jones was our casting director for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and she's cast a lot of stuff. Um, Parks and Rec, she cast Freaks and Geeks, which is one of my old favorite shows. She just is good at putting a great group of people together. I don't know. You know, I think casting directors are sort of the unsung heroes of Hollywood. I think that they have a really incredibly tough job. And she pulled us sort of all out of, you know, out of our little respective comfortable worlds and threw us together and made some kind of like alchemical magic. She is really kind of a she's been on this. She's been on this show before. Oh, she's um, fantastic, isn't she? Yeah, I had to. I really had to talk her into coming onto the show because she she's is shy. very modest about her work. But yes. she's cast like seventy five percent of the great comedy of the last fifteen years or so. Yeah, and it seems like this show, particularly as with Parks and Recreation and The Office, is a show where the the characters grow out of the actors on the program that the that the personalities yeah. of those actors and the way that they match up together really drive the show in a way that's actually relatively unusual for TV comedy. I would agree with that statement. I think, you know, one of the best examples of that is actually how I was cast. Uh, I initially read for the part of Aunt Amy Santiago, um, who was uh, detailed in the script. It said that she was Latina. And so I went in for that role, and Allison said, why don't you come back? I want you to come back for this Amy role, but I also want you to come back for this character of Megan. And Megan was... Uh, essentially Rosa, but before I came in. So, like, in the script, it's described her as really tough and scary, uh, you know, real New Yorker. Um, and I sort of took that and ran with it. And then when I was cast, when uh, Mike Shore and Dan Gore decided to cast me, they said, look, we're going to, we we love you. We, we're going to change the name of the character to to sort of suit you better. And that's where Rosa Diaz came in. Did you imagine that the big break in your career would come from a sitcom? You know, I did. I wanted that so badly. Uh, sitcoms, for me, have always been a real touchstone of the American experience for me. I immigrated to the United States when I was three, two or three, and my father and I would watch Seinfeld religiously. I know every episode of Seinfeld, and to me particularly sitcoms, I think, are the new sort of Shakespeare in a weird way. You know, in Shakespeare's day, everyone would go to the theater and that's where you would all connect and like think and talk about the human experience, right? You would all be in this one space watching this one kind of story. And now it's sitcoms, I think, that connect us in a way, in that way. Did you have Seinfeld peoples in school in Texas where you grew up? Seinfeld peoples like did you have somebody that I remember in middle school I knew the people that I could go talk to about what happened oh, yeah. on Seinfeld well I mean my dad you know my dad and I would watch it together and we would dissect it we would literally dissect it and my dad would be like you know why that's funny because and then he would like try to explain to me why what had just happened was hilarious we would talk about it all the time it was really like the way that my dad and I bonded a lot because like, as a teenager you know you don't like your parents you think that they're awful and they are, but really you are the awful one. So it was the only way that my dad and I were able to sort of bond and like have a thing that was just ours together when I was in that sort of awful, awkward stage. <laughs> I just really like one of the weird things about Seinfeld that I only noticed as an adult. And again, I say this as the as the biggest Seinfeld fan. I, I couldn't love the show more. yeah. Well, for one thing, as a kid, I don't think I understood that the characters were supposed to be bad people. I oh, just, yeah. I think I basically identified with them literally with no problem at all. Yeah. So that was one thing. But the other thing is, like, every character that's not 
the main cast on the show is essentially a cartoon character. Oh, for sure. And one of the weird things that that sort of makes happen on the show, one of the consequences of that is that every person who's not white on the show is a cartoon character. And they're often often their cartooniness is based on their ethnicity. You've nailed the main problem that I have with Seinfeld. You've nailed it. Yeah. I'm glad I'm like I always I I feel like I I I want to be able to acknowledge that without putting down the significance for me of Seinfeld or that I think it is a brilliant work of art or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as an actor, you're coming into, especially like, so for example, those, all of those actors were guest stars, right? And they're dying to get onto what is ostensibly one of the most popular shows on television. I think I just used ostensibly correctly, but I'm not sure. We'll, (laughs) we'll think about it. Um, What's one of the most popular shows on television, right? So you get, your agent calls you, they say, you have an audition for Seinfeld and you read the sides and you think, Damn it, it's not really a great version of who I am, you know? But you want to do the role, so you go in and then you book it. And you can't change the lines once you're on once you're on set, you know? You can only just throw yourself at this thing and do the best possible job that you can. And I've certainly played roles where, you know, looking back, I I kind of wish that maybe I hadn't taken that part or maybe I I wish I could have said something at the time about how the part was written, but you're not always in a position of power to do that, you know, and sometimes you really need the money. And so I wish that, you know, more writers rooms had people of color in them. Uh, I wish that more writers rooms had LGBTQ people in them, IA people in them, you know, uh, that is something that's slowly but surely changing, but... That's the that was always the hardest thing for me to when watching one of my favorite shows. And you know, like you talk about like friends. I mean, it took forever for us to see people of color on friends. And like even even sometimes like in the background, you're just watching the show and you're like, Where are the black people? Where are the Latino people? This is supposed to be New York City. Like I've never seen a New York that looks like this. It's the same as when you watch like some Woody Allen films and you're just like, Where are the people of color? Where are they? Do you not see us? Do we not exist for you? You know? One of the things that I really like about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is that not only does it have, you know, it, it has a, it has a cast and a set of characters that represent a kind of a, a broad variety of different kinds of people who, you know, might work in a police station in New York. Yeah. Um, but it, it, wears those, it wears those cultural categories pretty lightly and elegantly that they matter in the show. They're not mm-hmm. ignored in the show. Um, but at the same time, they are not the subject matter of the show. Yes. And it's so rare that a television show does not have one or the other, that, that either ethnicity and, you know, sexuality and so forth are ignored or that they are what the thing is about. Right. And it's nice I- to have it's nice to have something that, um, you know, acknowledges the differences, the cultural differences between the characters but it's, you know, it's not the center of the show. That's a really high compliment. Thank you. I mean, I can't take credit, but I'll I'll say thank you for all of the writing staff. I think uh I I think the the best thing about that is, right? Like that's how we live our lives most of the time. Yeah, sometimes this stuff comes up in your day-to-day, but you know, I certainly don't enter a room and announce like, "Hello, my name is Stephanie Beatriz and I identify as Latina and bisexual." Like that's not something that I I don't have like that's not what we do as human beings. Like you don't we... have to. You you've got that printed on your T-shirt. <laughs> I actually do have a couple T-shirts that say something like that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think that that's the that is the beauty of that show. You know, there was that episode. I think it was last year, last season, uh, called Moo Moo, where Terry deals with racial profiling, and. Some people didn't like that episode. They were not into it. They were like, you know, stay in your lane, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You're supposed to be this funny escape from the world. And other people really appreciated that we talked about it because, you know, we're a cop show. And that is something that's going on in the world that cops deal with. I feel like you say that it is part of, you know, part of the way you live your life. But I think that one of the functions of white privilege is that I, as a white person, especially as a straight white dude, I can presume that, you know, the cultural milieu around me almost all of the time 
uh, will not ask me to stretch or consider myself from an outside perspective or my own perspective from an outside perspective. And that has been the way that television shows have worked for a long time because they've been run by people like me who just like either they were like making a choice like this is going to be the episode where we deal with race Mm -hmm. or it was invisible. Right. I I remember having this discussion with an actor friend of mine who was saying he's he's also a white cis dude and he was like. You know, you're really lucky because you're getting cast a lot and, like, Hollywood's just, like, really into uh, people of color lately. And I was like, that is a strange statement for you to make, (laughs) you know, on so many levels. Number one, I'm going to remind you that anytime you – anytime you turn on the television, you flip your channels and you're seeing yourself. You're seeing yourself on Friends. You're seeing yourself on Cheers. You're seeing yourself on Frasier. You're seeing yourself on Seinfeld. You know, those people all look like you. You can identify with those people. Where am I? Where are my black friends? Where are my Asian friends? Where are my friends that identify as trans or asexual? Like, they're nowhere to be found, you know? And so, like, if you're constantly inundated with this idea that you don't exist, you start to feel like, well, maybe I don't have any rights or maybe I shouldn't ask for things because, like, it just I'm, I'm probably not equal or the worst. My story is not important. Let's listen to a scene from Brooklyn Nine-Nine with okay. uh, my guest Stephanie Beatrice. And um, so she's she plays Rosa Diaz, a detective on the squad of the, the titular uh, police station and she is really tough and rides a motorcycle and never shows emotion and then she falls in love with this guy called Adrian Pimento who is a what was he so he was like a, he's like a former crooked cop on the lamb or something what was the setup for he was undercover he was undercover oh, for he was a really undercover long for time. like 10 years or something yeah. and and did a bunch of unspeakable nightmarish things while undercover <laughs> to stay undercover um, he's played by Jason Mantzoukas, the great Jason Mantzoukas. And uh, in this scene, the, the two of you are announcing your engagement. Check it out, losers! Guess who got their dealer? Nice. How'd it go down? We chased him through a subway tunnel back up through a storm drain. Adrian and I got engaged, and then we busted him with half a kilo of coke in his sock. Wait, wait, wait. What did you just say? It was in his sock. These dummies, they never think we're going to check their socks. <laughs> no, before that, weirdo, the getting engaged part. Oh, yeah, we got engaged. Engaged, engaged? Yeah. As in to be wed. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. You're amazing. We want it. Tell us everything. I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but it was super romantic. You follow. I'll cut him off in the alley. Okay, wait. You want to get married? Yep. Um, You don't seem like a a cold, brutal human being in in real life. Um, Is it weird that people know you so well from this television program, you know, from being in their house once a week and that you are this entirely different person? I mean, it's not not weird for me. Uh, I think it can be weird for fans of the show. Uh, I sometimes sense a bit of disappointment when I'm not who they've met. They've seen her over and over and over. They're used to her vocal patterns, the way she moves, the way she dresses. And when they meet me, they're sort of sometimes astounded. But also, like, it's very flattering in another way. You know, like, I sometimes describe myself as a character actress. And I think that that holds true for the Rosa role especially because she's so different than I am. We'll continue my conversation with Stephanie Beatrice after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Harper Perennial, publisher of the new novel It Devours, from Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, the authors of Welcome to Night Vale and creators of the podcast of the same name. Set in the American Southwest community of Night Vale, It Devours is a mystery about faith and science and how two people with opposing worldviews nonetheless find common ground. It Devours is available wherever books are sold. Go to welcometonightvale.com for more. It's that time of year again. Ghosts, pumpkins, and of course, who could forget the Halloween favorite, cultural appropriation. 
This week on Latino USA, we look at stories about cultural appropriation between people of color. Find Latino USA on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actress Stephanie Beatriz. You've seen her on television's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She plays Rosa Diaz. She also stars in the new film, The Light of the Moon. So, Stephanie, uh, I want to talk about your new movie. Um, And I want to give a heads up to folks who are listening that that the new movie, which is called The Light of the Moon, is about sexual assault. Um, It's about specifically the sort of ramifications and after effects of uh, uh, sexual assault uh, on a character played by Stephanie. And so um, that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the interview um, so that you know. Um, Let's play a clip from the film. This is the morning after the assault. And Stephanie is in bed and she's got a big shiner. Um, Her character's name is Bonnie. And her her boyfriend, her live-in boyfriend, who's played by Michael Stahl David, is bringing her breakfast in bed. Are you just going to sit here and watch me eat? The show's not about to start, Matt. No, I just... They told me at the hospital that I'm supposed to reinforce, like, a positive male influence in your life. I don't think you're supposed to tell me that. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Sit down. Like, I know this is weird and uncomfortable, and I don't know what to say, but just try and be yourself, okay? Sure. Sorry. And stop apologizing. You're going to kiss me again? I'm dying to kiss you. I just don't want to hurt you. I can handle it. I think rape is such a common, what do they call that, in dramatic, inciting incident Mm -hmm. in drama, especially in film and television. Yes. But the consequences and ramifications of it are typically... Forgotten. Yeah, I mean, so or, yeah. or so simply reduced to yes. something like justice or revenge. Yes. Um, both of which tend to be treated from a male perspective as well. Yes. I mean, and a lot of times you see the, the rape becomes like this character was sort of a nothing character and then she's raped and now she becomes a fully fleshed out human being, which is like an insane way to portray that. It's insane, but it's so normal and we've become anesthetized to it you know well oh yeah that makes sense yeah i was watching this thing and she got raped and and then that was it that's it right and like this is an act that takes place constantly i mean it's like one in four one in five women i think that have been raped in their lifetimes people are dealing with this so many of the people that you know in your office your friends they're not talking about it necessarily but so many people that you know have lived through this and no one is telling their story no one is telling that story. Was it scary for you to take that on? Hell yeah. Yes, it was extremely scary. I feel an immense amount of of responsibility to try to tell that story in the most honest way that I can. I've never been sexually assaulted, but trying to, you know, talk to that friend of mine, a couple friends of mine that have lived through something like this, And then trying to really put myself in the shoes of Bonnie the whole time and just, like, live that world as honestly as possible the whole time. I am hopeful that people that see the film can sort of get a glimpse of what that might be like for someone that's lived through that. But I I also know that it's one specific story. It's not everyone's story. It's one specific story that we're telling. We're telling Bonnie's story, and not everyone's story is that story. So I know that sometimes it won't people won't be able to identify with it um but i did my best and i certainly threw myself at it as much as i could so i'm i'm hopeful that people connect with it how did it affect your life to live with this as an actor it was weird it was you know i tried to what i wanted to do on that set was create an environment in which everyone felt like they were working together to tell this story in the best way that they possibly could so I made it a point to make the environment really friendly. I was I tried to learn everyone's name. And if I didn't, I was at least, like, conscious that everyone was working and everyone had a job 
to do and that we were all I wasn't more important than anyone else you know um on the particular day that we filmed the rape scene I was pretty quiet and I kept to myself but I tried to kind of like keep spirits up you know because I was like we're filming this really dark thing I don't want it to also feel super dark on set like I want everyone to feel like I'm okay you know and I was okay because we we blocked out the shot the rape scene shot for shot sort of like you would a fight scene or something like that and, you know, we did the scene over and over. Jess, our director, kept the camera rolling. Uh, we talked about, you know, there were a couple times where um, the actor that was playing the rapist, he was a little too far away from me in some of the shots. And Autumn Aiken, our DP, who's a, also a woman, uh, at one point she stopped and she was like, look, it looks, it doesn't look right on camera. Like, it needs to be more aggressive. And so everyone asked me, are you okay with that? I said, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's get the shot. We did it. And that day was hard, but it was also okay. It was manageable, right? And so then I get home and I'm eating dinner and I just feel so drained and awful. And then I get in the shower and take a shower and I just cried for a really long time. And as I was crying, I thought, this isn't even, this isn't even close to what survivors slash victims feel this is like nothing this is nothing compared to what they go through you know this is me pretending for one afternoon that this happened your character also you know i mean she is she is suffering with this horrible trauma through most of the course of the film but she is also a person who has friends and fun and stuff Mm -hmm. that struck me as a very important part of the story that while this is a story about her, about the ramifications of the fact that she was sexually assaulted, um, it isn't solely a story about her as a victim and person who is suffering, that she has relationships that have, you know, a positive impact on her life. She mm-hmm. has fun. Um, you know, yeah. it's it's all colored by this event, but it it's there. One of the things that I liked the most about the script is that Bonnie's really funny. She has a really strong sense of humor throughout the film. And some of it is gallows humor, but it's funny, man. She's really funny. And I thought that that was such an important part of this character. Because, like, she is... She's still who she was, you know? Like, she's still... There's just... This thing happened, right? And it happened to her. But it doesn't rob her of, of who she was before. She's funny. And she brings that humor into so many of the scenes... I thought that was number one necessary because like you can't you cannot sit through a movie that is that is dealing with such a dark subject and not be able to release the pressure valve like you can't you know uh just dramaturgically um but on top of that it like really it like shows you that like it's not going to be the defining moment of this woman's life ever she just won't let that be and I think most people that have gone through this thing refuse to let it be like that that's you know I walk in the room and I'm the woman that was raped or I'm the man that was raped I think that a lot of rape stories that we see in scripted entertainment are on cop shows and one of the things that defines most cop shows is the delivery of justice Mm -hmm. so you know part of the reason that watching Law and Order or whatever is satisfying is that you know from the beginning that as the process works its way through that in the end justice will be delivered. Right. And it seems to me like one of the premises of this film, The Light of the Moon, is that not only is justice not guaranteed, but justice isn't... You know, the way that we think of justice, justice through the legal system, you know, it's not a cure for trauma. Right. It doesn't resolve things. It doesn't. I mean, how could it, right? Like, you've, you know, let's say you're one of the lucky ones and they actually catch who did it to you, you know, let's say, then you probably have to go to trial and then you're probably going to be up on the witness stand and then you've got to live through, you know, retelling your story. And then let's say you are one of the lucky ones and your perpetrator goes to jail, which does not often happen, by the way. Then you go home and you have to keep living your life. But the thing still happened to you, right? Like the thing still happened. And that, I think, is 
one of the things that I think that our film is really trying to show. It's like because of the media that we've consumed, like justice is always served and the bad guy always gets caught. And I mean, a great example of that in another film that I really love is Room. And in Room, those characters, they get out and they find their way to freedom. But the repercussions of what they suffered are still affecting them all the time, you know? And even though, like, he gets caught and it, justice is hopefully going to be served, it's still, it still doesn't feel fair or right, you know? And there's still so much victim blaming going on. It's like, why did you put yourself in a position to have that happen to you? You know, you're going to have to live with that forever. I mean, we're, we're seeing it, like, now in all these women that have come forward about Harvey Weinstein. And it's like so many people, the response is like, well... You went to the hotel room. I mean, you took the meeting. Whew, we are, we have so much work to do. We have so much work to do. I feel like your character in The Light of the Moon, part of her struggle is, and it dovetails with the way these things are represented in, in film generally, is her struggle is to be the protagonist of her life mm-hmm. in the context of this horrible thing having happened. That what she wants is to be able to choose her path to yes. be to let her sense of self be what drives her yes and not have it be defined by something that she didn't choose didn't want can't control i think in a in a weird way that's sort of all all of, all of us want that you know which i think is what makes bonnie a good protagonist in in the films that we can all identify with her in some way or another but especially the feeling of like how dare you tell me, how dare you tell me that I'm broken and that I have to do it this way or I have to live this, this, this has to be the path now. Um, I get to choose. I want to choose. And her ultimate, like, frustration with, you know, the limits that she has because she wants to have it all go back to the way it was before and or like have it all just be over all of the feelings all of all of it just be like done end it and she can't do that by herself and she ultimately has to reach out to other people to have that happen and that's not something bonnie is comfortable with well stephanie i am so grateful that you took all this time to come be on bullseye it was really great to get to talk to you oh it was my absolute pleasure it was really lovely speaking with you Stephanie Beatrice, The Light of the Moon is in theaters November 1st. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Griffin Dunn. Griffin is primarily an actor. He has over 85 credits to his name. Recently, he starred alongside Katherine Hahn in the Amazon show I Love Dick. He was also in the Dallas Buyers Club. He starred in An American Werewolf in London and in the 1985 Scorsese classic, After Hours. There you go. Fair is a dollar and a half. What? Fair went up to a dollar and a half as of midnight. You're kidding. I've got 97 cents. No. It's raining like mad out there. No. Would you just give me a break? I really just want to go home. I'm sorry. I can't do that. I could lose my job. Well, who would who would know exactly? I could go to a party, get drunk, talk to someone. Who knows? He's also a director. He made the movies Fierce People and Practical Magic, along with the Oscar-nominated short film The Duke of Groove. Now he's directed his first documentary. It's a biography of his aunt, Joan Didion, one of the most critically acclaimed contemporary writers. Didion rose to fame for her journalism. She immersed herself in stories. In the late 1960s, she broke through with slouching towards Bethlehem. In her career, she covered a bunch of different stuff, the counterculture, war, immigration. She also wrote a handful of novels and a few memoirs. She's led a fascinating life, but until now, there hadn't been a documentary about her. She's pretty private. She doesn't give a lot of interviews either. The film is called Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold. It's an intimate look at one of the most compelling thinkers alive. Talks about her impact on journalism, her fiction, too. Dunn also focuses on one of the biggest tragedies to strike Didion's life. In 2003, her husband John Dunn died of a heart attack. Not long afterwards, she lost her daughter, Quintana Rue Dunn. 
Here's a little bit from the documentary. In this clip, Didion is reading from her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, which talks about the loss of her husband. I did not want the year after either of them died to end. I knew that as the second year began and days passed, certain things would happen. My image of them at the moment of death would become something that happened in another year. My sense of John and Quintana themselves, John and Quintana alive, would become more remote, softened, transmuted into whatever best served my life without them. In fact, this is already happening. For once in your life, just let it go. Griffin Dunn, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Good to be here. Were you scared to make a documentary about your aunt? Uh, Yeah, I, I guess I did feel this incredible burden from the moment she said uh yeah okay when i asked if she'd let me make a doc the the gravity of what i had taken on hit you know it was uh there was a lot to be uh you know concerned and worried scared is just as good a word you know i i grew up knowing as so many know that this is the importance that she has in the world and 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 the intense passion and ownership so much, so many of her readers have about her work, and and she's been such an influence on on so many people, uh, you know, from whether they become a writer or where they live or you know benchmarks in their life, they can they can equate to what they were reading of hers. So I I, I hope to deliver something that would both honor her work and. And show her fans or and people who didn't know anything about her what you know what she's like in her in her home and how much she laughs and and is and is engaged despite the gravitas and and uh, heaviness of of uh, of her observations about America and its darkest periods um, that she is actually you know um, my aunt Joan who I grew up with hearing laughing all the time. I mean, one of the things that would scare me about making this movie, and it's also an incredible opportunity in making this movie, is that your Aunt Joan Didion has, you know, in uh, attaining icon status, one of the odd things about that is that uh, icons are necessarily abstracted. You know, they're reduced to a few lines. And your Ant had become like almost as much a, a, an object of like aesthetic admiration, like visual aesthetic admiration. Absolutely. As anything else. So mm-hmm. this brilliant, brilliant writer, one of the greatest of her generation, ran the risk of being the beautifully cool woman in the big sunglasses holding a cigarette in these famous images of her in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. You know, and and, and I've always thought that one of the reasons that her, that she gained such readership at that period was that the photographs, those Julian Wasser photos of her standing in front of the, 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 the stingray, that's what drove people to the bookstore. They wanted to know who that woman was. What, what was she writing about? What was she like? You know, there was a, section in the in the in the uh, in the movie that that didn't uh end up making it that kind of addressed her image you know how conscious she was about it and and how conscious other people were about it and we interviewed uh Phoebe Philo who was a the marketing director at at um Celine who was the woman that had the idea of putting Joan in a in a, a Celine ad, uh, a fashion ad, you know, and and it was enormously successful uh, and unusual to have an eighty year old woman in the big sunglasses promoting sunglasses or shoes. I don't know what they were selling, but uh, it whatever it is, it really caught on and sold very well. Um, she's she's always represented visually something very important to people. But I mean, that's a. That is both a gift to you 
and a challenge. I mean, the gift is that there are these beautiful images to show, and your aunt remains very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're making a movie. You're looking at things. Yeah, a visual medium. On the other hand, you have to think about, well, how do I let this, uh, you know, specifically non-visual art be represented in this you know, when I'm surrounded by all these incredibly powerful images. Uh, yeah, that was that was certainly that was certainly the challenge. Um, and you know, her, um, you know, and her writing that was always the, the the intent was to also visualize her her prose. You know, and and but and 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 the things that she writes about, you know, from slouching the center will not hold. There are these incredible images of of families falling apart and 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 boards of lost and missing children that she she talks about and so putting the putting the pictures to uh her writing and putting her at from that time from the pictures taken at that time they 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 blended very well together it was sort of you know making that collage fabric kind of tapestry was was really the most fun in the editorial process. Was part of why you wanted to tell this story about your aunt that you and she share, particularly in light of her more recent books, which have been about grieving, Mm -hmm. that you and she share a kind of survivorship status in this you know big exciting family that it, that that you know you, there are further generations of your family but you and she are sort of the last two standing in a way yeah yeah i wouldn't say i was i i was very aware of that but that that wasn't really the reason for making the movie um but i was you know uh you know when john died my 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 father kind of was sort of next in line to be like John and then when he died then I was you know I have dinner with uh, you know her she has a group of friends and of which you know uh, and myself all all of us have dinner with her you know maybe once or twice a week and she has you know people over all the time so I I long before I'd ever thought of a of the documentary, I was just sort of aware of, gosh, how I fit through attrition into her life. Um, what really motivated me was that I, I, I didn't realize there'd never been a documentary about her, and I, I kind of felt without getting too kind of heavy about it. I thought because of you know this is what I do is is make movies, while not documentaries necessarily. I felt obligated to to ask and 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 to make it. Because I knew, I knew besides being a, a, a very personal experience for me, I also knew that there was a, a real hunger for this. That there was like, a, that this would be something people would really, really want to see, which has borne itself out. And and you know we had a way I got some of the money was was through a Kickstarter campaign, and the campaign had a trailer. And to raise money, well, we raised money like by lunch on our first day, and uh, and then the comments and the and the and the attention of the press from all over the world was huge. I'd never seen anything like it, so um, I kind of felt like um, like I was providing a service as well, you know, giving really able uh, being the only person able to give what a lot of people really wanted to see. More with Griffin Dunn still to come after a short break. He took acting lessons from one of the most renowned and honestly kind of scary teachers of all time, the great Uta Hagen. So, you know, we'll find out what that was like. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smilf, a new comedy series from Showtime. Based on a Sundance award-winning short film, Smilf takes a hilarious and unabashedly honest look at Bridget Bird, a 20-something single mom from South Boston. Smilf is loosely based on the life of series creator Frankie Shaw. Check out Smilf, streaming now, only on Showtime. Go to Showtime.com and enter code BULLSEYE to get two weeks 
free. Offer expires December 1st. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to Griffin Dunn in just a second. But first, let me tell you about Heat Rocks. On every episode of Heat Rocks, which is our new culture show at Max Fun, writer Oliver Wang and music supervisor Morgan Rhodes invite a special guest, often a musician, sometimes a writer, a critic, a producer, a scholar, to talk about one album that they think belongs in the canon of urban music, the greatest records in the history of hip-hop, jazz, and soul. The show just started a couple of weeks ago. They just put out a new episode with Shea Serrano, who you might remember uh, from Bullseye, uh, maybe, I don't know, three episodes ago. Shea talks to Oliver and Morgan about DMX's album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot. He claims that it is absolutely perfect. You can hear him defend that claim on Heat Rocks. Anyway, if you listen to Bullseye and you love hip-hop and soul music, I think this show is going to be a home run for you. Grab your favorite podcatcher and search for Heat Rocks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Griffin Dunn directed a documentary about his aunt, the writer Joan Didion. I want to play a clip from the movie, and my guest is Griffin Dunn. Uh, he's directed a new documentary called The Center Will Not Hold uh, about his aunt, Joan Didion. And one of the defining works of her career has been uh, a piece that became a book called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. It's about, as you described, Griffin, the kind of human realities of the abstract ideas about hippiedom. And the sort of broader social meaning. And there's this scene in the piece that's about uh, Joan Didion going to this apartment in San Francisco. She sees this little girl wearing white lipstick, licking her lips, five years old, and she's on acid. What was it like to be a journalist in the room when you saw the little kid on acid? Well, it was... Let me tell you, it was gold. I mean, th that's the long and the short of it is you, you, you live for, the, for, mo for moments like that if you're, if, you're, if you're doing a piece, good or bad. That might be the most intense. <laughs> it really is. I, I, I'd never, it's the most amazing moment in the movie. Um, I never tire of looking at it. To me, that line is, is, is just pure Joan. That says everything... When I saw that moment happen, I saw I saw the structure of the film. I saw the the, the character, kind of how how the balance goes from family to the the work. And because at that time, her daughter Quintana was two and a half years old, she was going to San Francisco for weeks at a time on assignment, and she missed her daughter terribly. So she could miss her daughter terribly, and then see a five year old be in this horrific situation and you think she's going to say you know what was it like well it was and you think she's going to say the most horrible thing I ever saw as a mother I feel so deeply I must no she says it was gold she can draw the line between how she sees the world as a journalist and how she feels things as a mother and that's how it's played out all her life you know when when so she can write a book like Year of Magical Thinking. She can write about it to investigate her own grief as as a uh, as a wife and and as a mother who's in in loss and grief. But she can write about it like a reporter. That's that's her balance, and that's the balance I tried to create in the movie as well. Was it difficult to ask your aunt about the? deaths of your uncle and cousin, which are, you know, central to her work and central to the film? Yeah, yeah, very much. I, I think in a way, um, in a way, I had a harder time asking than she did answering. Um, I think both were tough, but uh, I, I felt, you know, making her have to relive it and and talk about it, but at the same time, you know, she... She's a journalist and is being interviewed, and she knows 
of course, I'm going to ask that and probably would not have any respect for me if I didn't, you know, go there. Um, so um, she was, um, while it was very tough, um, there'd be also moments in the silences where she'd, you know, look up and go, you know, keep going, bring it on. I know where you're going. Um, so I guess in a funny way, she made it, you know, easier. But it was extremely difficult. I want to talk before we're out of time with you a little bit about your acting career. Mm -hmm. You studied with three, three of the most important acting teachers of the 20th century. You were at the Neighborhood Playhouse during the very end of Sanford Meisner's career. Mm -hmm. You studied with Uta Hagen. Mm -hmm. Um. And in Los Angeles, you studied with Stella Adler. That's right. Those are three teachers, each of whom has a very different perspective on acting. So starting with Sanford Meisner, uh, with whom you studied, and also with whose protégés you, you'd studied, because yeah. I think he was, it was very late in his life, um, what did you learn about acting from him? Before I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse, I, I uh, uh, had known who Sanford Meisner was, and I'd read the, a book about the group theater that Helen Klerman had written, and I knew the roots from Stanislavski, and so I knew I was going to... Uh... Oh, and then on top of that, my father um, had also briefly studied with Sanford Meisner. He originally wanted to be an actor or a movie star, as he said, and, <laughs> um, and Sanford said, you'll never make it as a movie star. You're too short. And Dad took him at his word and, and quit acting. So I knew this was the guy who told my dad he was too short to be an actor. And I'm not that much taller. I want to retroactively uh, let your father know, in case he, he's listening from heaven, uh, that I know from my own acting career as a very tall person uh, that while it is great in the world to be tall... Uh, it does not particularly help on camera. Yeah, yeah, it's not a shoe in. <laughs> it's like the one place where it's not worth anything. No, actually, uh, you know, Alan Ladd didn't need uh, that height. Yeah, they just—that's what they. Tom had. Cruise isn't sweating. Absolutely, it. that's what they got those uh, boxes for, um, to stand on. But um, so, so when when I got there. It was bad for me, and I know worse for him, but it was still bad for me that, that Mr. Meisner's larynx was removed shortly before I arrived. So he was speaking through one of those machines, you know. It was very monotone, and it was, you know, very... Uh, it was really weird because I'd, I'd seen stuff of him, you know, energetically, you know, getting involved in scenes with other actors, with the other actors and everything. So when I got there, it was um, I don't want to do the voice; it'll sound like I'm making fun of it. But 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 it, it 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 was it was to be getting notes as if by a computerized machine. I thought I just missed it, you know. If if I just got here a year earlier, then I'd really get the Samford ex Meisner experience. That's a really like. Uh... Uh, twenty. I don't know how old you were. I'm going to say twenty. Mm, uh, that, that's yeah. So that's a teenage actor. That's a teenage actor's perspective. Oh, without a doubt. A man's I'm making life it leaving all, him. But still, an actor who's going to be around because I'm making it all about me. Yeah. Um. So I did, however, get the full um, the full head-on experience with with Uta Hagen, who uh was was truly terrifying. Um. And you know and she, for anyone who doesn't immediately recognize her name, she, among other things, wrote the book Respect for Acting, which is probably uh, the first uh, the first book that they hand you in any acting school, yeah. um, and was you know a, 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 an immensely legendary teacher into the into the 21st century. She she only died 10 or 12 years ago. Exactly, and she and and on on Broadway she was the very first Martha. Uh, in and Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and her method was still the the most effective and the most helpful that's uh, that I've known to this day. But she had a uh, she was tough, tough, tough. And uh, what I what I learned was um, the worst thing that could happen 
would be if she didn't yell at you because it meant she didn't really care. And the most cutting thing I ever saw happen was two actors in a scene that clearly wasn't going very well. She just didn't even take the time. And she just went, oh, okay, darlings. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. Who's up? And you could just feel a chill. Um, and those, I, I don't know where those two young actors are today, but, but that was a bad day for them. But she, you know, if she, it was like that, that kind of old school thing where I like you so much, I believe in you so much, I'm going to torture you um, so that you can withstand all the hurt you're going to face once you leave this classroom and go out in the professional world. And then uh, Stella, <laughs> Stella I had for uh, one summer in Los Angeles. She, she was very, comp you know, she was very helpful with me when I did a real serious scene. But when she get excited about something, she would hold on to her, her dress, the blouse that she had on. The the, and and she go, you gotta feel it from your heart. And she pulled down her hands, holding onto her dress, and expose her breasts for one shocking brief moment, and then pull the dress back up. And the cast would go, oh! and but that would be like, it's got to come from there. So I loved her. <laughs> well, Griffin Dunn, I'm, I've used uh, more of your time than had been allotted to me. So thank you so much for making the time to, to come and be on Bullseye. Thank you, Ted. Griffin Dunn. His documentary, Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold, is in theaters and on Netflix right now. Go check it out. It's a beautiful movie. If you want to read a book of Jones, my producer Kevin says you should start with Play It As It Lays. That's Kevin's recommendation, red hot off the presses. Before we wrap up an episode here at Bullseye, we'd like to give you a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. It wasn't until I sat down to watch Too Funny to Fail that I realized how much the Dana Carvey show meant to me. Too Funny to Fail is a new documentary on Hulu, by the way. It's about one of the strangest and most brilliant shows ever to air on network TV. The Dana Carvey Show hit the air in 1996. It was a primetime sketch comedy show. It was on after Home Improvement. I was 15. From the very first moments, from the very first cold open, it was something incredible. And I guess the idea was to have Dana Carvey do an impression like one of his beloved impressions. So he did Bill Clinton. But I guess the guys who wrote the show like Robert Smigel, John Glazer, Charlie Kaufman, all these legendary comedy writers who were like 26 at the time. They didn't care about a, you know, a regular straight-ahead Bill Clinton thing. So they came up with something kind of crazy. The premise was basically that since America had turned on Hillary Clinton, Bill would have to be both paternal and maternal. And specifically that he had taken hormone treatments and grown teats. I invite the American people to suckle on my teats. <laughs> That's right, suckle up. Not too hard there, just suck easy, baby. I know this is shocking to you, and I feel your revulsion. But do you know how many babies I can feed with this milk? Do you realize how much money can be saved in the school lunch programs? Let me show you how much. Sit down there, baby. That's right. I will feed the world. I mean, I want to be clear. Not even just two teats, six teats, like a mommy pig. And then there's, like, puppies eating from them. And look, in retrospect, I understand that that's weird. The idea that anyone thought that this was a good way to kick off a show. I mean, the first episode of a show on ABC... The Mickey Mouse Network, and the show comes on right after Home Improvement? A sketch with a bunch of puppies suckling at the president's bosom? In retrospect, yes, I recognize that is bonkers. But it's kind of a funny thing. When you're 15 years old, you don't really have that context. I just felt like, I, I, I don't know, I just felt like I was watching my own personal sense of humor being enacted live on television. <laughs> 
I mean, I loved it. I loved Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert, who, by the way, were cast members on the show and nobody's back then. I love them doing this weird sketch called Waiters Who Are Nauseated by Food. It was everything to me. We have a... Oh. <laughs> we have a milk-fed veal with a uh, mint jelly. That, oh. <laughs> that, com- that comes with asparagus tips and an olive caper sauce. <laughs> I remember very vividly going to school and talking to my friends John and Dan about it. Like, did you see that? Did you see First Ladies as Dogs? That was a real sketch. Did you see the ambiguously gay duo? Did you see the commercial for Mountain Dew that was just a big, tall glass of Mountain Dew on a table, and then they're trying not to say that it looks like pee? Bill, what does that look like to you? Delicious mountain freshness? No, no, seriously. What does that look like? Cool, refreshing springtime in a glass? No, 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 come on, look at it. What does that really look like? Liquid sunshine? There you go. Liquid sunshine. Mountain Dew. It looks exactly like liquid sunshine. So here's kind of my pet theory about the Dana Carvey show. Dana Carvey's a baby boomer, but kind of a happy one, not really an anti-establishment one, like a crowd-pleasing one, a child of the sport coats with pushed-up sleeves comedy boom. And all these Generation X guys who made the show with him, Carell and Colbert and Louis C.K. and Dino Stamatopoulos, Robert Smigel, they weren't classic Gen X slackers, really. They weren't punk rock or even particularly alternative rock. These were all, like, hardworking dudes who wanted to make people happy, just like Dana did. And what brought them together, it wasn't opposition to the rules. It was more like total indifference to the rules, like they didn't care about the rules. What they cared about was the joke. The joke was everything. That was their territory. They would fight for it to the death. That joke might be crazy or bizarre, maybe even upsetting to some people, but often it was also weirdly warm-hearted and so perfectly crafted, so meticulously made. I mean, these guys were good There's this moment in the documentary where Robert Smigel, I think it is, says he ran into Jerry Seinfeld one day. And Jerry Seinfeld told him that Dana Carvey show was the funniest thing on TV. And so Robert Smigel thinks, you know, why would I change it if Jerry Seinfeld thinks it's funny? A Beatles C is back all this month. Leftover Beatle memories. I remember me first Snickers ball in America. You know, I bit into it. And there was these peanuts in there. I couldn't bloody believe it. And I took another bite, right? And you can't believe how many peanuts were in there. It was like there was a little man on the other end feeding peanuts into the candy bar I was eating. And I called John over. I said, John, look at this. It's all packed with peanuts. What's all that, right? And John says, well, you know, John, you know. He says, well, of course, you bollock. That's what the rapper says, you know, packed with peanuts. It was on TV. On regular TV. I mean, my mom did not even have cable then. I remember adjusting the rabbit ears so that I could watch the Dana Carvey show more clearly. I mean, I don't think a month has gone by in the 20 years since it was on TV when I haven't thought about a sketch called Skinheads from Maine. And this is a little upsetting, but it's basically just Colbert and Carvey dressed up in head-to-toe L.L. Bean in rocking chairs on a porch, spouting this charming, down-home, lobster-fed racism, homophobia, and anti-Semitism. Nice sunset we're having. Yeah. Yeah, the weather's the only thing the Jews don't control. (laughs) Yeah. 
Watch your wedding there. Heat stick for beating on the Spaniards. I mean, the joke is just perfect, and that is where their loyalties lay. I mean, I don't think it ever even occurred to them that someone might not want to see that sketch come on after they've been watching a home improvement with their kids. I mean, seriously, who wants to see that sketch come on after they've been watching Home Improvement with their kids? So in the end, The Dana Carvey Show got eight episodes. Seven of them aired. The last one got pulled for a very special episode of Coach. When you watch the documentary, you can see the shadow rolling over the show from the first episode. But in 1996, I didn't really. I just saw these perfect jokes right there on network TV. So perfect that the next day on the schoolyard, I could, I could taste them in my memory. And I was 15 years old. It was great. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, just a few miles away from the exciting happenings of the 2017 Major League Baseball World Series. The Fall Classic. That's what they call it. Probably got it trademarked. Please don't sue me. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow here at MaximumFun.org is Khalid Mualim. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They provided it to us along with their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org and check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We've got a bunch more info about the show there. We've got sneak peeks of upcoming interviews, lots of useful information that we found on the Internet, news you can use, all kinds of fun stuff. Go like Bullseye on Facebook. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.